Hi, this is Lady C. Hey, this is JT. Welcome to The Critical Thought. In the upcoming episode, we're going to be speaking with an individual that is a former elder, member of the Bethel family, a musician and songwriter, life coach, and author. And he's going to share his story about how he became a witness, how he woke up, and what he's doing now after leaving. You're listening to The Critical Thought, where we challenge our listeners to use critical thinking when examining the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses. And we want to welcome Gary Alt. Welcome, Gary, to the program. Hi. Thanks for having me on. You Glad are so to have welcome. you here, man. Yeah. So you want to tell our audience a little bit about who you are and how you became one of Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay. Um, well, you got it all right. I, I, uh, I do a lot of things, but uh, an author, life coach, and a musician, uh, and, a, and a songwriter. Um, and uh, I only became an author since I, I left the organization. Uh, and I don't actually think of myself as an author. It's not my main thing. But um, when, I, when I came in, it was the mid-70s. Um, I was a teenager. And I was very, very concerned about the Vietnam War or Vietnam conflict, as I would put it, because we weren't actually at war with Vietnam, but uh, they were at war with each other. But uh, uh, just different things that uh, I like Christmas started to I started to wonder why I'm supposed to enjoy a holiday when there's all this misery in the world. And that's kind of was my focus. And uh, I was kind of prime candidate because when you think about how they recruit people, it's almost always. You know, you hear these things on the service meeting about uh, what world conditions can we uh, talk about this week? And it's about the price of a head of lettuce or the price of gasoline or something ridiculous. Uh, but it, they always tapped into the fear of the world and, and how we want we, we're just tired of it and we just want it to go away. And, and so that, I was a prime candidate for it because I I was always wondering about why is why are things such a mess and and uh, you know what does the future actually hold? So, um, but where I came in, what I think is important about my story is that it was actually very different. I mean, the organization in general has changed. It's tightened a lot, a lot. It's clamped down on, you know, the way they treat this fellowship people. It's gotten worse and worse. But um, so I think things were a little different everywhere back in those days. But especially where I came in, the elders really did not enforce ideas upon people like, um, like you're not like you can't go to college if you do go to college. Well, you know, you, it's up to you, but uh, nobody's going to talk to you anymore. You know, it wasn't like that. Um, and, and things in general weren't like that. It was more if you had a question about something, they'd, they'd show you how to research it and and um, uh, how to make a decision. But they'd leave the decision up to you. So as a 15, 16 year old kid, they didn't they weren't making decisions for me. Now, that's kind of different from for most others. Uh, experience, especially if they were raised as, as witnesses, but that was my focus. So when I finally got out, um, it took me quite a while to realize that, that not, first of all, this isn't the truth and to come to the conclusion about whether it's actually a cult or not. It, it took an extra long time because my experience was that, no, it's not. Um, how can you say that they don't control people's emotions and their thinking? But, you know, what, what I eventually did was I thought about, well, yeah, but then when I moved on and I moved to a, a congregation in the rural parts of New Jersey um, and, and everywhere else I've been in the world, I realized that, yeah, there is a lot of control, a lot of thought control, a lot of emotional control. 
it just wasn't my experience 100% where I came from. But, but so instead of looking at it from my personal perspective, I started to looking at it from the whole picture, like the worldwide picture. And, and that's how I was able to kind of put it all in perspective and figure it out. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, people often will tell us on the channel, well, well, they didn't do that in our congregation, which may mm -hmm. be true uh, because the elders many times may not enforce those particular viewpoints. But when you, like you say, you back up and you look at the worldview um, as a religious denomination, what is the general view that goes around throughout this organization? And that's how you get to see they're controlling people all over the world. And that's that's a very good point that you made. Very good point. Yeah. yeah. So now, Gary, you mentioned that um, you were 15. So were your parents witnesses or did someone contact you in school or something like that? What was going on? Uh, no, none of my family ever have been witnesses to this day. None are my, my birth family, that is. And, you know, all my extended family, my cousins and grandparents and everything, aunts and uncles, none of, none of them were. So uh, it was actually difficult for me uh, to get in because I was opposed. You know, at first, nobody seemed to mind that I was studying the Bible with my best friend who lived around the block. To answer that part of your question, he was a schoolmate and I knew him since the age of three. But oddly enough, I never knew that he was a Jehovah's Witness. It's kind of sort of a, I, I mean, I'll say this in all honesty, even if he's listening, I'll say that that we would refer to him as a double lifer because he was like sort of in like, but uh, mentally and emotionally out, like he was never a bad person. I really would never say that he was doing bad things like drugs or whatever, but, uh, but he was sort of fighting it, you know, like, cause it was his mother's religion and he had no choice about it. Uh, but I can say that with all, with a, a lot of comfort because he's out. Um, he got out way, way before I ever did. I think he was in his, like probably mid twenties or something when he started to kind of ease himself out kind of sort of, and then they eventually came to his house one day and found out that he had been celebrating Christmas and, you know, uh, supporting his, the union for the, the, the job where he worked. And those things are just, Oh my God, so bad. So he was the fellowship. So, uh, uh, so anyway, that's how I, I, I came in. Um, and so my, my family never was, but they, they put me through the ringer because they saw at some point they, I mean, maybe, geez, not even a half a year after, maybe a couple of months after I started studying, they started hearing things about how Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate holidays and birthdays. And, and they said, hey, is that true? And I remember I was actually on my way out in the field ministry. I wasn't baptized yet, but I was on my way out to the field ministry. And I, I probably had to walk to the field service group. It was about a mile away because I didn't drive yet. And um, they said, well, we'll talk when you get home. After I said, I confirmed that, yeah, they don't celebrate Christmas. And they said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I wasn't going to celebrate anymore. So they said, we'll talk about this when you get home. So when I got home, uh, I mean, they really read me the riot act. I was not permitted to go to meetings ever again. Forget about field, the field ministry. They didn't stop me from studying because they felt that, well, it's just studying the Bible and it's with my good friend, Charlie. So there's no harm in that. But, um, but yeah, I was not permitted to go to meetings. Uh, and so for quite a while, I don't even really remember how long, but I guess that year and parts of the next year, I was not permitted to go to meetings. So I, I, I developed, I, I already from the beginning had a, a very, very strong um, feelings about how important the meetings were. The first meeting I ever went to, Sam Hurd was the circuit overseer and he, you know, he's a governing body member now. And he gave a talk that was mesmerizing, you know, cause we're supposed to hold these people in such high esteem and 
everything that everything out of their wor- mouths is golden, you know, and and uh, it, it 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 blew my mind. I, and I saw from that point on. I, no, I'm sorry, that wasn't the f- the first meeting. It was the second meeting. The first meeting was just a regular talk and watched our study. But what really impressed me was the people, how warm they were, and everything. But um, um, I, I I right away developed a very strong sense of how important the meetings were. But especially when my parents forbid me to go, and I eventually got permission back to go uh, after, geez, I don't even know how long, just asking them over and over again, can I go to the meeting and accepting the answer? No. Um, I, I had a very, very high appreciation for meeting attendance. And I really, for the next 40 years or whatever it was, I rarely missed a meeting. I mean, I had to be like really, really ill to miss a meeting. So uh, even work, I would turn down promotions and raises because I said, hey, look, if it depends upon me working late, I, you can fire me. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to my meeting. So so anyway, to answer your question, no, none of them were in. Well, you know, you probably thought you were being persecuted. That's what I was thinking, too. <laughs> yeah. Persecution is coming. It's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the devil, you know, because it's very clear. There's this, there's this, this very strong dichotomy within the JWs. Everything is either. I always say that you're either it's either a God bucket or a devil bucket. Oh, yeah. Good versus evil, black versus white, right versus wrong. Everything, there's nothing in between. And so, hey, you know, well, they're going to prevent you from going to the meetings, from maintaining everlasting life. And we have to go to the meetings to get everlasting life, right? So it's part of the formula. So, yeah, Yeah. I definitely thought that my parents are under Satan's control. And and my mom, the way she reacted to it was a way that I had never seen her. She went into a, a level of hysteria that I've never seen from her before. Well, actually, I, I did once when I really think about it, but it was it was a different thing. But when I was a little kid, but but it was like I I really thought like, wow, this is the Satan. Satan is definitely having a field day here, you know, because that's yeah. the only way we knew how to think. It's either it's either Jehovah or Satan. It's all yeah, I mean, it, it's so black and white, and and, and you're yeah. taught that 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 say and, and part of the Bible said is you know they're not going to want you to continue. St- I mean, that is just it is just the most basic foundation teaching that a Jehovah's Witness. Will teach a Bible study. Your family, friends, and people who know you may oppose. And the minute it happens, it becomes like a boom confirmation. This must be the truth. And man, right, this, right. like you said, and from that point forward, it's off to the races. Right. And I, I remember there was a time. I don't like to dwell a lot about them on what they've teach and everything, but there was a time when they replaced the Live, Live Forever book with something else. I can't remember what. And they moved that whole idea. Of, well, actually, it might have been in the Live Forever book, but whatever it was, it, all of a sudden they moved that whole idea of how you're going to get opposition from people that are important to you. They put that right up in like the first or second chapter because they because they realized, <laughs> hey, we got to prepare people for this. You know, uh, yeah, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. That, now yeah. it's obvious. You know, it wasn't obvious at the time, but now it is. I was just thinking, now that you're coming, you're becoming a part of the organization, you get baptized. Um, how did you end up developing the desire to actually end up going to Bethel? Though that's kind of interesting. Um, I, I just thought it was the most important thing I could possibly do. I was a computer programmer, and I was very good at it. Frankly, I was, I was, I knew that I had a, a real talent for it, a lot of, because it's about logic and everything. And and that, right around that time, they were developing uh, the publishing system. It was before Meps, actually. Well, Meps, maybe that, maybe they were starting Meps, but that was like a, tw- a dual thing. I don't think people, a lot of people understand what was going on there. It was a political thing going on within the organization, a, a power struggle. And uh, MEPS was being developed up at the farm where they were actually developing their own hardware as well as software. And they were doing the, the publishing system down in Brooklyn. And I thought, 
hey, if they need programmers, I'm here. That's the most important thing I can do. So I only lived about 30 miles east of, of Brooklyn. I lived in Long Island. Where I came in was uh, central Nassau County, just outside of New York City. And um, uh, I, I developed friendships just from meeting people at parties and things that uh, before you know it, I, I was just talking to a lot of people about Bethel. I never saw myself as a Bethelite. I just never, I always thought they were just like wondrous people, you know, just sort of like, they're not like me, uh, they're better than me or what have you. They, they're in some special stratosphere. And, uh, that, and I started to see myself as a possible Bethel family member that could actually do this. And I thought that, I mean, the most important thing I can do for the work in general is not the ministry out here in Westbury or becoming a ministerial servant or whatever. The most important value that I can bring to the organization is at Bethel. So um, we uh, we applied. And and actually, I got the application from Grant Suter, a governing body member, because he was visiting our congregation. We Our elders had there was constant flow from the governing body to our congregation all the time because of uh, some of the friendships that, that some of our guys had. And uh, I got the application from a governing body member. And then when it seemed to be stalling, uh, I, I, I talked to Dan Sidlick, or I didn't talk to him, but a friend of mine talked to Dan Sidlick about moving the application up. And, and then the next thing you know, I actually was interviewed at Bethel, which is another thing that's rare, if ever. Um, I actually went for an interview with my future overseer and three other guys. My wife and I, I was married for a couple of years at that point. Um, so I wasn't a regular pioneer. I never regular pioneered. And that's almost a requirement for going to Bethel. My wife was, but I wasn't. And um, so the next thing you were, we were at Bethel. And, and uh, so the, the governing body, I mean, I, I, I knew all those guys um, pretty well. I, I sat at a governing body table, which is basically means that when you have lunch and, and breakfast, you're, you're, you're with a, a governing body member and it rotates. So every week it's a different guy. And then they go back to the beginning. It's alphabetical. So it starts with Barber, I guess, was the first one, and it ends yes. with Schroeder or whoever, and uh, and it, we would just start all over again, you know. And I think you know that because you were at Bethel, I think. Yeah, was um, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the eighties. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. so I knew those guys, and I worked I worked directly with Dan Sidlick. I had Gary Barber up to my house for the weekend. Even even Lursh uh, has been to my house for the weekend for a whole weekend, like from Friday to Sunday night, and um, so I kind of I kind of knew those guys to one level, the degree or another. You know, in other words, some more than others. And um, so, yeah, that was my experience. And so I never saw myself as a Bethlehem, but all of a sudden here I was. I was only there for like about, I guess, three years or something. So you had an interesting experience then, you know, being in the religion, you know, because as a person that wasn't raised in or born in, mm-hmm. you really climbed the ladder and, you know, accomplished a whole lot more than people who would have been born in or raised in. So you were really interested and thought this was the truth, huh? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, even after I was out, um, I, it, it started, well, depending upon how you look at it, I, the, the day that I really was sort of starting to get kicked out and not associated with anymore was in 2012, just about almost exactly 10 years ago. But it wasn't until about four years after that, that I got this fellowship. They finally caught up with me, I guess you might say. And for something I didn't do, actually. But um, but uh, it wasn't until two years after that, that I started to actually do some research and and realize that, oh, wow, this is not the truth. And as I told you, I, I studied cults after that. And it, and it took a, quite a while after that, that I finally came to the conclusion 
about whether or not it's actually a cult. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was diehard. I mean, uh, e- even in those years from 2012 to 2016, when I started to get phased out until I was actually kicked out, I, I was holding on for dear life. I mean, I just I just wanted to be connected in some way because I thought this is the truth. And even if I don't get it, make it into the new system, which I was pretty sure I wasn't because of the way they were treating me. I thought, like, why, you know, why are the elders treating me like this? It must be because Jehovah doesn't want me anymore. And I just thought, well, you know, even if I don't make it into the new system, it's still going to be there. And I'm happy to know that the world's going to be straightened out one of these days. Um, and I, so I still believe 100% that this is the truth, even with the overlapping generation, because that came about several years before I started to leave. And I thought, it's ridiculous. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. And there's no scriptural backing to it, uh, really. And uh, But I still thought, all right, one of these days, I know it's going to change. It's changed about seven or eight times over the years, so it'll change again. And they'll come up with something else. And maybe eventually they'll get it right. Um which they obviously have never been right about because if it keeps changing, it's because it wasn't right. And now it is right. And it wasn't now it is then it wasn't again. Now it is. So I just felt like, no, it can't be right this time. This is just ridiculous. Uh, but it didn't matter to me. I, Cause I still thought, Hey, we're still living in the last days and Armageddon is going to come and, and it's just going to be Jehovah's witnesses to survive. I never quite believe that part, but I, I 99% believe that. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I just still thought as a whole, it's still the truth. Even if they treat people miserably, um, they, they, it's still the truth is the only place on earth where you're going to get the truth. So it took, it took a really long time for me to, to kind of come down from that. You know, Gary, I, I think you make a very, very powerful point. And that's what so many people struggle with. Once we buy into that idea that this is the truth mm-hmm. at that point, the doctrines don't really matter anymore. And it's funny because that's how we became witnesses. We were impressed with the doctrines in comparison to what our former church or our former religion may taught. But all of a sudden, the doctrines don't matter. I mean, I've, I've talked to so many people, uh, the same with myself and, and many others I know. We was just willing, well, this is the truth. And if they need to change something, Jehovah will fix it. And at that mm-hmm. point, they can teach anything they want to. And we will just we'll just go, as they say, we will go along to get along. And that, right. that, is, that is so true but that you see it so many times with people as they struggle. Right. And, and, you know, in terms of, in terms of, like I said before, that, that, and I I don't go into a big deal trying to prove, oh, this is a cult. I don't even care if you want to call it a cult or not. That's not important to me. Um, But uh, when I finally made the determination I did after studying about cults in general and and what defines a cult and what requirements, what parameters make an organization a cult, um, part, part of, uh, of what um, finally you know, made me realize the the reality was okay. So so when when does it when does the cult thing start? I mean, it didn't start when I was first contacted by my friend Charlie, who I know from the age of three. It wasn't just because we had a Bible study. It, what I I felt I feel at the defining moment, at least with me, and I think I think pretty much with everybody, when when that takes over, when that thought control starts. Put it that way. When the thought control starts, is the moment that we say. Oh my God, this is the truth. This is what I've been looking for all my life. This is the truth. Because from that moment on, it's not just what we have been taught and what we're learning now that's the truth, but it's everything that we're ever going to learn from this organization has to be the truth. 
that's that's a problem. I mean, that 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 is like, you know, we talk about papal infallibility, how if the pope says something, it's right because he's the pope. How is that any different? It, it's just it's the truth because it's the truth. No, we no longer have to prove anything. It's just the truth because it's the truth. So that's that's where the thinking, the thought controls really starts is when we come to that conclusion. So that was, you know, a little before I got baptized, when I finally drew that conclusion. I mean, I, I mean, I studied stuff. It's not like I just said, well, I don't have to prove it anymore. I, I remember studying certain things. And, uh, and, and the, the one thing I remember very clearly being confused about was when I was on my own, I was studying one of the revelation books. I forget which one, you know, how they used to have them in two different books, the, the really fat one and the thinner one. Um, and they were, they were talking about the trumpet blasts and how those all related to talks that Rutherford gave at conventions in Ohio or whatever, back in the twenties or thirties or whatever. And I thought, come on. I mean, no, <laughs> I, you know, so here I am a kid that just decided this is the truth and I want to be baptized. I wasn't baptized yet. And I was thinking, no, that this is absurd. I mean, and, but I read it and I read it and I read it over and over and over again. And I said, I finally said, you know, it has to be right because this is the organization that's taught me the truth and there's no other explanation for it. I mean, if it isn't, if those aren't the trumpet blasts, then what are they? I have no idea. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put this on the shelf. If anybody asks me, I'll say, yeah, well, that's the Trump first trumpet blast was in 1928 or whatever, but I, I don't, you know, I didn't make it part of me yet, but I, but I thought, well, it, it must be true because they said it and I don't have a better idea. That's kind of part of the thought control is that even if there's a doubt, you suppress the doubt. And for years, and I mean, how many times did they replace the Revelation book with something else? And they held to that idea that the trumpet blasts go back to Rutherford, you know, which is so crazy. But you still, you know, I was a book study conductor and I would I would ask the questions and I would say, that's correct, brother. You, you know, the first trumpet blast was 1928. Um, that That's how it controls you. Um, it's not necessarily believing every single thing, hook, line and sinker is it's believing 90% of it maybe, and the rest of it doesn't matter because they'll change it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's still God's organization. Yes. Great, great point. And you know what? And you 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 said a lot there, but what I'd like to know is, you know, you you spent a lot of time in this religion. You gave up a lot. You know, you gave up your relationships with your parents. So when you found out this wasn't the truth, how did that affect you? How did you feel? Well, when I the, the first, I, 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 okay, so it was a gradual thing before I found out it was the truth. I mean, I'll get to your answer directly in a minute, but the the, the first thing that hit me was, uh, you know, I was treated really, really badly by the elders and, and a lot in the congregation too. They treated me very differently when I stepped down as an elder. It just got worse and worse. And um, <clears throat> um, the first thing that really went south was... Um, something that my wife did and my then wife who basically wanted to get rid of me. I, I eventually realized that she wanted a, a, a pillar of a husband that was going to go, you know, hundred percent for worshiping the elders and, and, you know, respecting everything. And, and I wasn't going to be that way. And so she developed a plan to get rid of me. And part of that plan involved a, a, an amazing information campaign on her part that um i so basically what happened was i lost my friends overnight i mean literally overnight all of a sudden i was persona non grata and so the whole idea of the brotherhood i realized like in a heartbeat that it's a sham 
there is no such thing as a brotherhood. It just doesn't exist. It's only as long as you're doing everything that you're supposed to do, what they believe you should do. That's when they'll love you to pieces and they'll have you over, even though, even though, you know, you're, you're thousands of miles from home and, and, you know, you don't know anybody and somebody will have you over to their house that never met you before. Those things really do happen. They really do. And I, and we, we saw it many, many times, but they don't happen if you're not going to all the meetings, if you're not going out in service and reporting in field service. So I, I realized in a, in a heartbeat that the brotherhood was just nothing but a sham. And that didn't, it's, it, it in a way bothered me. I tried to get at least some of my friendships back uh, and, and to no, to no avail. Um, so it didn't take me long to, to stop grieving the loss of the brotherhood. I, I just, I'm just not going to spend, you know, the rest of my life worrying about the fact that I lost all these friends because were they friends? And they really weren't. I mean, I, I did all kinds of things for them and then this is what they did to me. So I can't depend upon these people for anything. So what am I going to worry about losing them for? Cause they're, they're really worthless to me. So that was, that was part of it. So I was out really for, um, for a number of years and then they disfellowshipped me. And, and like I said, I, I still thought it was the truth for a couple of years. And when I finally did the research, I did the research to prove to me that it is still the truth because it was very important to me. I wanted to know, I wanted to believe that the kingdom is going to solve all the world's problems because those problems still exist. And, and, and there's no reason to think they're going to get a handle on it. So I wanted to believe that the kingdom is the answer that the, that, that Jehovah's witnesses are correct. You know, even if I wasn't going to associate with them and little by little, I, I started to, I started to see like, holy mackerel, the, the way the governing body comes to conclusions about doctrines. It's just so crazy. It's so arbitrary. It has nothing to do with what the Bible actually says. <clears throat> and um, and uh, not only that, but I, I mean, just like, I, I think the thing that really got me the most was when I realized that the, the uh, conclusion that they've drawn about 1914 is really not correct. Um, it, it's, it's not just that it might not be correct, but it, it isn't. <laughs> And uh, and it's provable from history and from um, all, all kinds of historical writings. And uh, once I realized that, I thought, well, that kind of throws everything out of whack because it's not just that 1914 isn't as important as they said it was, but also 19. I, I always forget if it's 18 or 1919, whatever. Whenever the governing body was supposedly appointed, or not the governing body, when the when the faithful and discreet slave was appointed by Jesus Himself to look over His belongings on earth. Well, if 1914 is wrong, then so is 1918 or 1919. You know that. So then I, and and then when I realized that that the governing body actually didn't really come into existence until 1971, they used the term once back in the 40s or something. But they were talking about all of the board of directors, which was like 400 people. So obviously that was not the governing body in the sense that it is now. So the governing body really didn't exist until 1971. So when they decided back in, I don't know. 2010 or whenever the heck it was that the governing body and the faithful and discreet slave are the same thing. That means that Jesus himself appointed the governing body, which is the faithful and discreet slave in 1919, but it didn't exist until 1971, but Jesus appointed it in 1919. I, you know, so I, so those are the things that I started to realize, like they, not only are they wrong about this, this and that, but they're just wrong. They might be right about some things. I don't know, but it can't be the truth. It's impossible that it's the truth because the faithful and discreet slave doesn't exist. The governing body does exist as an entity. 
but it means nothing. It's just a bunch of guys sitting around pushing pencils or whatever. Um, so I, it, it didn't, it, so to answer your question, when I finally realized that doctrinally they're, they're not, it's not the truth, whether they're right about a few things or not. Um, I, it, it was, it was freeing more than, more than anything else. Again, I think it becomes, we go into a period of mourning because now, now all these years we believe that we're going to be in the new system and we're not going to have to worry about getting sick and dying and all these other problems. You know, maybe we're from a war torn country. That's not going to happen anymore. So those things were very, very dear to us and, and it shaped everything about our, our thoughts and, and, and our, our place in the world. And now all of a sudden it's gone and, and we go through a period of mourning with all of the phases of mourning, you know, uh, disbelief, anger, sorrow, all, all the things that we go through with mourning about anything, losing the death, losing someone in death or losing a job or losing our health. It's the same thing. It's mourning. So yeah, now we're mourning for the fact that our entire belief system is, is shot to, to pieces, you know? Um, it, it didn't really hit me like that. It was more like, it was a relief to know that I don't have to know that everything I believe is, is correct. It's okay. It's not only okay, but it's good to know that there are things that I have yet to learn. Cause that's what about, that's what being human is all about. We're always learning. I don't care if you're 80 years old, 90 years old, you're still learning. And, uh, and to, to stop learning is to stop being human. So you know, I was just very, very comfortable with the idea that now I'm, my mind is, a, is more of an open book and there, there are other things that I, I need to discover. Lady C and I, we, we feel exactly the same way you do. Um, it is a good feeling to know that you don't have to know the answers to every question. Right. Uh, we have right. like a little, a little, little, mo- little, 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 little moniker on our, on our website that you know, I really have questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. And, and right. that is one of the problems we had as witnesses. Uh, we always wanted to ask the governing body a question. We wanted an answer. And when they didn't know the answer, they would just oftentimes make up answers. And that's that. It, it, it's, it's very painful when you find that your, your belief system is so flawed that it can no longer stand up. And that's that's that is very difficult. And, you know, what I'd like to know, you had mentioned that um, you didn't spend a lot of time grieving the loss of the brotherhood. So can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to bounce back yeah. after leaving? Yeah. I, well, I, I, um, I had a radio show, an FM radio show, which I got about, um, <clears throat> I guess just about a year before it, the, my wife's, my then wife's um, information campaign started and, and uh, I started to be kicked out more or less. And, um, and so I, I had friendships at the radio station and it started out with just being a volunteer, um, uh, you know, during their their uh, fundraising. I, I figured, hey, if I can answer telephones and take credit card numbers, that's fine. And it's a way of because I was I felt very, very strongly about the importance of radio and music and things like that. And uh, I, uh, I, I I was developing friendships. It's just I didn't go too far. I didn't cement them. You know, they were just friends kind of from a distance, just that I would see at fundraisers. And um I, I just tapped into those people and I, I already knew who the ones that I really loved as like my core friends. I already knew, I already knew who, who those people would be just based on our relationship already. So I, I tapped into them and I, I solidified those, those uh, relationships and I learned who to depend upon, who to spend time with, 
and um, I'm not going to say it replaced the Brotherhood because it's you know it's it's never going to be at 100 percent equivalency. But but um, I, I I just I just found that I I have to kind of look into myself first of all to see what my real value is. And, uh, and, and I spent a lot of time, I, I basically had to rebuild my life. I mean, my life was, was literally destroyed. I had no money, no job. Um, it, it all had to do with the this, this stuff that my ex-wife did no job. I, I, uh, I didn't even, couldn't even drive the car that I had actually bought. I had to drive a, a piece of junk, um, that I was like given more or less. And, uh, I had no place to live for a period of time. Um, so I had to piece this stuff together. And, and I just decided to just to take it one step at a time, just one thing at a time and not worry about the things I can't change that I can't control. Just worry about the things that I can change and control and just take it one at a time. Like which one, which one is the most important one to deal with today. Uh, and so part of that, you know, I mean, obviously you have hours that you're not working on all that stuff. You're just trying to relax and enjoy yourself. So I would just, I, I remember like on Friday nights, my friend Trevor uh, had his radio show and uh, he would go on eight to 10. So sometimes I would just show up. I'd bring him a cup of coffee, say, Hey buddy, how you doing? And, uh, and then he'd say, Hey, why don't you come over after the, after the show, we'll hang out and play guitars. So that's kind of how I did it was just reestablishing a network of friends and just taking one thing at a time and not worrying about the stuff that I can't control. And then how did you end up getting into life coaching? Well, I kind of realized that I always was a life coach. It's a, it's a, it's not so much a, a job or, or a, a career as it is a, a personality type, actually. And, uh, people that don't have that personality probably shouldn't be doing it. I've even when I was an elder, I, I, there were times when I was a hardline jackass like everybody else, you know, like, like you have to listen to us, and, and this is the way it is, you know. But there are a lot of times when I wasn't like that, and I'll just give you an example. Um, there was one time when we got a, a call at the kingdom hall from a young woman who was, we didn't know her. She was from a congregation across the river in Pennsylvania. And this is when I was living in New Jersey when I was an elder. And, um, so I, I ran, I went over to her parents' house. She was visiting them down the block from the kingdom hall. And, um, the problem was that her husband had hit her. She's a young girl, like 20 years old or something. And her husband had hit her and she left. She, she went to seek refuge at her parents' house. And, um, and, and I remember just asking her one question. I said, I just, I mean, we talked a lot, but I just basically said, what, so what do you want to have happen? And she looked at me like, what, you know, I said, what, what do you want? What do you want to happen next? What do you want to have happen? And she says, well, I want to, I want to go back. And I said, okay. You know, instead of like, I mean, in my mind, I thought you're crazy to go back because he's going to hit you again. That's the reality of it. A guy that hits his wife has a problem and the problems doesn't go away with you going away, coming back or, you know, leaving, going back. It doesn't change anything. It's, he's going to hit you again. I can guarantee you that, but I don't want to say that because it's her decision, you know, Now that already was a completely aberrant thing for an elder to do. Normally, what was I supposed to say? I was supposed to say, uh, yeah, you have to respect your husband, go back, you know, as long as he's not killing you, you know, I, I never, I never bought that. I thought that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. And, so I just basically, I just said, okay, so you want to go back. So how, what does that look like? How do you, how do you think that's going to work? And the, and the next, you know, so now she's not just talking about how to get home, but how that's going to look in the days ahead. Like what am I, what's life going to be like? And so, okay, uh-huh. 
so then what happens if this happens again, then what do you, what's your plan? You know, so, so I was just trying to get her to think without telling her what to do. And that's what a life coach does. A life coach listens and once in a while, very, you know, confirms uh, what the person said that, that they understand it. And, and then, you know, kind of, kind of like, um, narrows it down to, okay, if this is your goal and, and it's not my goal, it's your goal. If this is your goal, how do you see that happening? What obstacles do you see getting in the way? And uh, what what tasks can you identify within, let's say, the next week or two before we talk again that you can reasonably achieve and you know accomplish? And and how would you do? You know, so this is what life coaches do, and that's what I did with this girl. And so I realized one day when when somebody at work, and this is long after I was out, and I owned my own insurance agency, and uh, one of my employees. Um, said, can I talk to you tomorrow? And, and I said, yeah, sure. How about 10 o'clock? You know, so we talked at work and for about an hour about a problem that she had of completely unrelated to work. It was just about her family life. And, and I just listened. And the next day she came back and said, Gary, you helped me so much. I went home and I did exactly what you said. And I said, okay, Janelle, but, um, not uh, Janique rather. I said, but uh, just so you're aware, I didn't actually tell you anything. As far as I know, you came up with this. You you have the mental ability and the mental power to to, to make your own decisions. And that's what you did. I was just listening to you and confirming what you said. And, you know, maybe I kind of helped shape the conversation a little bit. So when I realized that, that I am a life coach, I thought, well, I just need to get certified. So I went to a, a particular school. Uh, went to, I mean, it was, it was electronic, you know, it was over, over the internet, but, uh, with these, like just what we're doing now. Um, and I got certified and, uh, now I have a shingle. So, uh, I'm officially a life coach and I can actually have clients, but that's how it happened is because I always realized that uh, it, it's, it's the personality type of that unusual experience that always amazes me every time when somebody all of a sudden starts opening up to me about uh, some kind of problem they're having. When I was an elder, before I was an elder, after I was an elder, after I was out of the organization, it's always happened that people just, for some reason, they sense that this person knows how to listen and they start unloading all kinds of issues that they don't talk to anybody else about. And I listen and I don't judge and I just listen. And before you know it, they think, they think they've solved their problems and, that, and I didn't really do anything. So that's that's how it happened. Uh, I just I just needed to get certified. So there's just something about the the. Uh, um, process of of not just internalizing our problems and one worrying about them and not getting anywhere, fretting and fretting day after day and not coming to a conclusion, and then all of a sudden making that leap to say I got to tell somebody about this and get their opinion upon it, uh, uh, opinion on it, and before they even express their opinion, just the the process of of regurgitating what's in our brain so that they can understand it it creates like a new pathway and all of a sudden these miracles happen in our own brain that all of a sudden we've got it figured out. And it's really, really clear. That's happened to me many times just with talking about a technical issue. And it's that way with life issues as well. It's not any different. It's just a thought process. What kind of advice would you give to our audience of people who are waking up and they just don't know what to do? It depends upon what, what what they're stuck with, you know, what what it is that they don't know what to do. But uh, at some point, we have to start to look at our belief system, our beliefs about who we are, and to a large extent, that's shaped by 
what we were taught by that organization. And and like one one of the main things that I deal with is um, the shame that people that are being shunned can have. Um, and it's not the shame about uh, what we have perhaps done. Maybe we, we haven't done anything. Like I, I didn't do what I was disfellowship for. I know that. I, I mean, it's not that I, obviously at this point I should be anyway, because, because I don't believe the doctrines, but, but uh, it, it's, I'm not talking about the shame of, of what we might have or might not have done, but it's the shame that, that that creates in us that, that somehow I'm not worthy of talking to my own parents or to my own children. And that's, that's the belief that's in us that, that we, we need to kind of come to terms with, but recognizing the next steps and recognizing the different phases of grief. When I say phase, I don't mean like they're discrete phases, like you're going to be angry and now the anger is going to be over and now you're going to be sad. And now the, now the sadness is going to be over. It all kind of, you know, jumbles together. And, and one day you're going to be, feel sad. The next day you're going to be angry and then you'll feel sad again. It's, it's an iterative process. But, um, but that's, that's where I can help people. And it's, it's really about your belief system, not, not just the doctrinal beliefs, but what you believe about, well, well, uh, let me put it this way. It's, it's believing that the organization matters in any way that the elders are at all important and what they think about us has any meaning. So even if we're talking about your parents, well, obviously we want their love. What they think about us does matter, but in the context of that organization, it's the organization that's forcing them to believe that, that they should not associate with you it has nothing to do with you as a person. It's not something you did. It's not th- something you deserve. It's just the way that they think and they can't help it. They really can't. There's nothing they can do about it until they wake up. Also, we have to get to the point where the organization has no meaning to us and the elders have no meaning. They're just a bunch of plumbers or shoe salesmen or whatever they do for a living. That's all they are. They have no authority over us. They're, and and as, as far as qualifications go, if you think about it, they have no qualifications for anything because, you know, if you go for a job interview for whatever, I don't know, to be a computer programmer, uh, are they going to ask you, well, are you a husband of one wife? Okay, good. All right. Uh, are you a drunkard? No. Okay, good. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a part of a qualification qualification for any job on earth. But for the witnesses, that those are the only qualifications for being an elder. It has nothing to do with management ability, intelligence, experience. It has nothing to do with anything that would qualify for somebody to be a shepherd. But so they really have no meaning. They have no authority and no no power over us anymore. And, and they actually have no qualifications to do any of those things. So again, it's about beliefs. It's about realizing the organization means nothing. The elders mean nothing. And even the people that are shunning us that are important to us and should be like our parents or children, those thoughts that they have mean nothing because they're wrong and they can't help it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, we did a video on that about we cannot continue to allow these people to have power over us. Right. And the moment that you come to that resolve, these elders, I can't believe, I, and, and I'm going to tell you what happened. People actually get mad at themselves two or three years later when they come to realize, I can't believe I let these jokers ruin me like that. And right. that's what that realization will do to you. It will give you a certain freedom that you're like, I was frustrated for no reason over these same three guys sitting in that back room back there. And that right. is very, very important. And that, and that's why thinking thinking about the organization, I mean, I think about it in terms of the fact that if I'm talking to somebody that's trying to get out or is out, I, I need to understand what they're going through. So, you know, my mind is on the things about the organization to some extent, but I, I really don't concern myself with, 
I, like I, I, I hear these rumors about how they're going to have a memorial in in the Kingdom Halls again. I, I don't care. I mean, go ahead, have a great time, go to your memorial, whatever. But then that means that there's going to be renewed campaigns. They're going to be contacting me. Oh no, what am I going to do? Again, it has no meaning to me. So um, that that's what I mean about about what I just don't concern myself with their teachings and their activities because. If I, I see a lot of post JWs, I used, I used to like I used, I like to use the word post JW instead of XJW. It seems like it's less of a label, but whatever. Probably 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 um, splitting hairs, but um, I, I see a lot that even 20, 30, 40 years after, they're still actually JWs in a way, even though they have never been in a kingdom hall again. They might have remarried or you know all kinds of changes in their life. They're still stuck in that organization. It still matters to them their life is centered on around the fact that they're a damaged ex Jehovah's witness. They still identify themselves in relation to that organization instead of like, yeah, yeah, I did that once. Yeah, but that's not me. You know, well, of course it is. It's part of us. Anything that's part of our, our, uh, our, our uh, past is part of us. I mean, I went to a certain elementary school. That's part of who I am, but it doesn't define me. I, I, I don't think of myself as a damaged XJW or someone that can't, do this because because of what that organization did to me I, the, the people that i really sympathize with the most that have trouble with that are people well first of all people that were born in because the trauma starts very early on and you're completely indoctrinated but especially those who were abused um and i don't mean just mental abuse because in a way we're all mentally abused but but uh but those that have been abused physically especially sexually um, that's a special, that's a special case. And I, and I know there are people that will, um, you know, will, will, will make it part of their persona to campaign against that. And it's important to them to, you know, do something about the two witness doctrine, um, the two witness rule, or the, uh, the fact that they still don't report things to the authorities. So they're actually enabling pedophiles to be part of the general population. So they're affecting the, the kids of everybody in the community. They're, they're, they're basically part of affecting everybody. Um, the, you know, I understand that people that want to campaign against that, and I, I, I respect them for that, and I, I think it's wonderful. But for me, I, I, don't, I don't have trauma. It's, I'm not a damaged XJ. That's just what was part of my life. And I, I just hope that I, I try, try to help others to look at it the same way, regardless of what they've been through, that you're, you, you don't have to be damaged for the rest of your life. You can put that behind you. Like if somebody says I'm disfellowshipped, okay, I was disfellowshipped in 2016. That's what they did. That was an action that they took, a decision that they made. And it affected, it, the people that are really affected are the people that are Jehovah's Witnesses that, don't, that now think of me as some evil kind of person. That's not who I am. So I'm not disfellowshipped. That's not a state. That's just a thing that an organization that's one tenth of one percent of the earth's population that's how they look at me nobody else looks at me that way none of the people that i work with none of the people that i buy coffee from or go go to get gasoline from nobody looks at me as a disfellowship anything it doesn't mean the word doesn't if you said if you said i'm disfellowship they'd say you're you're disfellow what like what what the heck was that so if that for that to continue to define our ourselves as people we're still defining ourselves according to that organization. They're not literally JWs, but they're they're shaping their th thinking about themselves 
from the standpoint of the organization, how my what my relationship is to it. The, the day that they disfellowship is what the day that that relationship ceased to be. I, I'm done. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness anymore. Never will be again. So what's my relationship to that organization? Zero, nothing. Good point. I like that because we, like you're saying, you're relating yourself and you're, you keep identifying to the action that they placed upon you. And that can be really bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, and, and I, I think it really drives home the point that you said um, about one of the things that you did is that you took the time to examine what cults are. And that was, that's something that we have always recommended. That's been one of our number one recommendations. Uh, and we did that ourselves by, you know, taking classes. Uh, if you can go to a community college or whatever and take a, a, some interesting classes in psychology, then it helps you to better understand why and how a group like Jehovah's Witnesses work. And, and the point you made is we have to, and, and it's really, a, for many of us, it, it's, it's, it is part of our life. We won't ever get rid of it. In fact, the, the best one, the interesting thing you often hear people say is, you know, I was in the truth 12 years ago. And, and, and so even some of the language, um, it becomes so ingrained in people because that's what cults do. They ingrain things in you. Mm -hmm. But I think the point that you've made is that we do not want that to become the identifying mark of us. Um, right. that, that is, that is the most important thing. And like I said, and I fully agree with you, once you realize, that's why I tell people, my wife laughs all the time. Once you realize that we were just working for a book publishing company, people, you know, you can try to tie God, Jesus, prophetic, and what, no, no. Once you realize we work for a book publishing company, then it takes on a whole different dynamic. We, you know, elders are middle managers, circuit overseers, you're a regional manager. I mean, this, we were part of a company. That's it. And just like when you leave your job in any other company, you move on. Right. Um, and uh, you don't keep saying, oh, I'm, I'm an ex, uh, you know, Exxon, you know, employee, or ex, you know, Walmart employee, yeah. just move on. And right, so you right. don't want it to become the, you don't want it to become the dominant part of your life. Um, like people who went to Woodstock. Yeah, I went to Woodstock. I was crazy. And they just move on. They're, they're captains of industry, you know. Right, so, right. so, and that's the way we have to look at it as well in many ways. Because right. yeah. if not, it'll drive you crazy. I could probably say, yeah. So applying that to myself. I, I used to cut lawns when I was a, a teenager. That was how I part of how I made a living, and I, I, you know, I cut my dad's lawn for years after that. But, but my, you know, I would say yes, I'm a life coach, or yes, I'm a musician because I do that now. But am I an ex lawn cutter? <laughs> I mean, it's like 40 years ago the last time I I did that. I mean, so yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. So I'm an ex JW, whatever. I, don't know. <laughs> I think we only use the term. So that people can find us right. on oh, the yeah, internet, yeah. because you know uh, exactly. the, Google, the Google search. You know <laughs> how would they arrive at right, our right. channel? So right. we don't really look at ourselves as ex witnesses. Because I'm gonna tell you right now, when we left this religion and we yeah. met new friends, yeah. we never even told them that we were ex witnesses. Nah, and we had just... some good friends of ours that live in our neighborhood, and <laughs> um, they didn't know that we were Jehovah's Witnesses until a couple years ago. Yeah, and we've been living we, we here never for years. Our, yeah, we never introduce ourselves in that manner because we don't right. identify yeah. with people we meet. You know, that's right. That's, you know, in the right, organization, exactly. that's the first thing you say to another witness. You know, how long you been? But now you 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 realize you're just dealing with people and you just keep it moving. Exactly, and it is exactly. a good feeling. It is a good feeling. Yeah, yeah. So so I guess I guess I would say because I agree. I mean, I would probably say the only time 
that I use that term is in relation to helping somebody because that's what you're yeah. doing. You're trying to help yeah. people. Yeah. And you have to you have to have at least some knowledge of of what's going on in the organization. Now, Gary, how can people reach you? Can you just give our audience a little bit of information about the books you've written and how they can reach you if they would like to talk? Okay. Um, Yeah. So first, first question about reaching me, Um, my website is open path life coach. So just open path life coach, one, one long word.com. And uh, my phone number's there. My, my email address is a little form. If you want to tell me anything, uh, I will just give you one caveat is that I'm I'm not just an XJW uh, life coach. I do specialize in uh, uh, high control groups, I call it, because if you were a Scientologist or a Mormon or whatever, a Mooney. Um, but that's just one of my specialties. I, I coach people for any number of things, just life, life coach, life coach uh, or career life coach, what have you. So I do have a pricing structure on my website, but it doesn't apply to... Uh, people that are struggling to to get out of the cult. Um, uh, it's something we can talk about because for one, for one thing, I just want to help people. And for another thing, I recognize that one of the um, things that have damaged us is uh, we, we may have the, the idea that uh, we were, we were not success driven. We were, we were failure driven to, to be a failure. There's virtue in failure because you can't have too much money. You don't want to go to college. You know, you know, you don't want to have a high, high uh, respected position in the world. Um, and that's that's shaped our thinking. So we might find ourselves in a, in a position where we we're just not making a lot of money. So my pricing structure has nothing to do with with XJWs. Uh, so that's one thing. And as far as my um, by my author, I don't really think of myself as an author. I just kind of did it. Uh, I mean, I've always known how to write. I always I guess I had a gift for it, but I just did it because I talked to so many friends that, that said you should write a book about your about your experiences. And these are people that were not ever JWs. So my first book is called force of will. And that's, um, that's a novel based on my true story. So the characters are like my characters named Gil, Gil Oldfield, instead of Gary old, um, in the book. And it's just about the four years from 2012 to 2016. It has a beginning, it has an end. So at the end I'm disfellowshipped and I'm making my life over again, but I'm still not quite like, I don't talk about, our Jehovah's Witnesses a cult or not, because it's not part of the story. Um, but it's about recovery. It's not about, oh, poor, poor me, all these things happen. It's sort of a roller coaster ride, yes, but but I think it, it, everybody says it's a real page turner. I don't know. But um, but anyway, the other one that I, I contributed to is a book called Fear to Freedom. And that, uh, if you go to, I think it's feartofreedom.ca, because it's, it's a gentleman in Canada that, that organized the whole thing. It's a book of short stories. And I kind of reduced my whole story to just 15 or so, whatever it is, 20 pages, just one of, uh, I think, 17 stories, all, all by um, mostly XJWs, but also Mormon and uh, one person who's evidently Muslim. Well, I know she was, but doesn't really say, say that in the book. So those are the those are the my author things. <laughs> and, uh, and as far as my musicianship goes, I, you know, I've got a bunch of CDs that I've, I started making them when I was still a witness and um, just just look at you know just do gary alt um like search on spotify or something for gary alt and if you don't find it at first just do like one of my album names is art of survival so just look up gary alt art of survival and you'll find it you know on youtube and itunes or whatever but the the, the two songs i really like to talk about now 
are are they were specifically targeted for the the JW the XJW community. Um, one is called Wake Up, and the singer it's under the singer's name. Her name is Emma Jade, so E M M A, and then the next name J J A D E, and it's all about waking up and making something of your life. So it's sung from the standpoint of a young woman, maybe in her twenties, that is just realizing that I gotta I can be something. So it's called Wake Up, Emma Jade, and the other one is a is specifically for the holidays because I know. A lot of folks uh, are are like they're struggling with what do I do about the holidays? Like, we want to celebrate it, but we have no memories, no traditions. So what do we do? Well, it's all about hey, make it up. You know, just do do. You could take it from here, take it from there. Make up your own memories, and there'll be future memories that you're creating today for your kids. So that's called this holy day. This holy day, and the singer is named Gay Ann G A Y A N N. So those are just two songs you can find that are available on YouTube and Spotify. You can buy them or just listen to them, whatever you want to do. Yeah, I, I tell you, Gary, one of the reasons we mention uh, things like this to people, because we just want people to, to see that you know there is life after the Watchtower. You can do things and people are doing things. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of the things that people are doing are things that they've always wanted to do. And they was told you got to wait to the new system to do it. So, you know, and, and so... It, it, as, as one guy told us, he says, for him, it was it was therapeutic to be able to do these things. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it serves many, many purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming mm-hmm. on our program and sharing your story, because we get so many, you know, messages from people saying that these interviews are really helping people. Yeah. Good. Good. Anything we can do to help. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Well, anyway, yeah. this has been Lady C. And this has been JT. And we'll see you all on the next episode. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers.